box. You opened it. We came. It's just a puzzle box! Oh no. It is a means to summon us. Who are you? Explorers in the further regions of experience. Demons to some, angels to others. Solved the box. We came. Now you must come with us. Taste our pleasures. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. Wait, 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 please wait. No time for argument. You've done this before, right? Many, many times. Nobody escapes us. He did, I've seen him, I've seen him. Impossible. He's alive. Supposing he had escaped us. What has that to do with you? I, I can, I can leave you here. And you, you can take him back instead of me. Perhaps we prefer you. I want to hear him confess himself. Then, maybe, maybe. Ghostface, I want to be in the sequel. I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane? Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. I am the eater of wolves and of children. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another terrifying installment of the greatest October in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 116, Hellraiser. That's right. We finally have some fall weather. Global warming, people. It's real. Happy Halloween, ass clowns. So this is... um. Are we going to get right into it, or do we got to do some stuff at the beginning here? What do you mean? I don't know. I I have some things to say about Hellraiser, so... Okay, well, first, as always, <laughs> follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Let us know how you like this Greatest October. I feel like we really kind of agonized coming up with the episodes this year. <laughs> we agonized coming up with every episode yeah, that we do. that's true. Before we jump into... The movie itself, though, did you want to say anything about A Star is Born? Oh, wow. I wasn't expecting this. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like the lead, the build-up to the release of true. that movie was such a big thing for you. I so. mean, yeah, it's weird because I've spent a lot of time talking about the movie after seeing it. 
And I think if you were a fly on the wall listening in on those conversations, you would think that I did not like the movie at all. But honestly, I mean, I, I did really enjoy it. I, I was in it the whole time. I mean, did I have complaints about it? Sure. Yeah. As always. But I thought the music was awesome for the most part. There's some duds in there, but it's mostly good. I was uh, excited and enjoying it the whole time. I've got the album on vinyl. I'm certainly going to put it on, light a candle. (laughs) Yeah, I was seeing some things online that were kind of echoing our sentiment a little bit where it was the only thing unbelievable about A Star is Born is that people would actually be excited to hear new music at a concert. Oh, right, yeah. (laughs) The receptiveness of the crowds to to these new songs. Yeah, I mean, it is stunning. You pointed out when we were talking about it. I I thought when we watched the movie, too, that it's just like, wait a second. He's basically having this person who's acting as, like, his backup singer come on and perform an encore as the main vocalist. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like people who paid to see an artist wouldn't be too thrilled with that. Yeah. And they'd be like, what is this song? Like, who? this is the encore? It does kind of play in an arena of some sort of alternate dimension when it comes to how concerts work, how people feel about music. It doesn't really matter that the songs are good. Yeah. People would not be thrilled to hear them. They wouldn't even really <laughs> give it a chance. Right. It just, you know, whatever. It, but- it was a fun experience, though. I, I was super excited beforehand at the beginning of the movie when she's like walking up the ramp leaving her work and she's just like singing the song and like the title comes across the screen i had like chills i thought the (laughs) end was good that slow piano song that lady gaga is singing after like the movie ends and the end credits are rolling i was like this is incredible (laughs) it was funny like having Lindsay along for the experience because she was just like she was like i don't know what the hell is wrong with you guys like and this was like just for me, but like we we get to the movie like two hours early. You're thinking you already have tickets and you're thinking about buying like other reserved seats. And then like once the movie's over, you're like rushing out. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't know. We've got we've got a whole experience. We need to get to the next phase, <laughs> which is talking about right. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess my closing comment on the movie is that they are pushing the movie as a drama at the Golden Globes rather Whoa, than not the shoe-in right. musical comedy best picture that they would definitely win. So they're okay. going all in with all right. this. I like it. You got to go for it, right? Yeah. By the time people actually hear this episode, it's like... The Golden Globes <laughs> will be over. <laughs> We're recording in advance, all right? Everyone just deal with it. Yeah. So yeah, Halloween is here. We are on... Unfortunately, the last edition of The Greatest October, I think this year was a pretty fun The last edition? Success. The last episode. Oh, of, of this, this Of this edition. Right. Okay. <laughs> Whew, good Lord. <laughs> People were really like, what is he talking oh, about? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing we liked about this podcast. Yeah. We figured, why not do another pretty big classic as our Halloween episode this year? It's something that is probably on the lower end of the modern horror classics. It's not quite to the level of the Halloween Nightmare on Elm Street, but... It has a following. Yeah, and it's way different from most movies. For it's sure. It's just a yeah. completely different thing going on here. I, and One thing I would say about this movie is, and I didn't see it when I was younger, this was probably maybe the most afraid of a movie 
that I had never seen <laughs> that I was in my life. Like wow. just seeing this movie on display at my local video rental store, Videotech, I was always like the picture of yeah, the pinhead. pinhead, right? Yeah. And I was like, oh my god, that looks terrifying. <laughs> and then the other thing is like, I finally saw it when I was in high school, and I was drunk, and like, it is so weird. This movie, I guess, is really like not scary anyway, but like. The idea of something trying to be scary when you're drunk is just like, you can't even get into it at all. And I scare so easily. <laughs> it's just weird how it dulls the senses so much that it seems like stupid. Yeah, I think the most interesting aspect of the movie that people who haven't seen it probably aren't aware of is that it's not really a straight up horror movie in the truest sense. It's not like A Nightmare on Elm Street, for example, where you have this main villain that is trying to kill a selected group of people, whether it's people that had to do with Freddy Krueger's murder or in Halloween babysitters or whatever. It's, (laughs) it's, it's more of this psychosexual Gothic story that has a lot of horror elements. Don't get me wrong, Uh, but it's kind of this whole other sadomasochistic bizarro sexual thing written and directed by a guy who had never made a movie before who was just a writer who wrote short stories and novels like an actual right not like a tv writer or a movie writer right you know clive barker yes yeah barker first came to prominence in the mid 80s with a series of short stories called the books of blood and prior to hellraiser a few films based on barker's writing were produced including a film called underworld and another oh, one called Rawhead Rex. It's not the Underworld. Okay, Kate Beckinsale. <laughs> Shockingly, that didn't come out prior to 1987. <laughs> All right, but he wasn't thrilled with the results. So when it came time to adapt his novella, The Hellbound Heart, Barker. Well, I, I feel moved. like we're kind of figuring out this guy's vibe a little bit based on these titles. Yeah, he moved into the world of directing to handle it himself, and honestly, for a lot of reasons, this movie should have been a complete disaster. It only has a $1 million budget, which is crazy for how it looks. Yeah. The practical effects of this movie in 87 are off the charts. There is a little bit of terrible effects. For sure. As far as that electric think, zapping. Yeah, and I don't know about the whole thing with the body being pulled apart. I don't know that that looks great. With the yeah, hugs? yeah, yeah. Okay, right. I mean, it doesn't look believable, but no, I no. think for 87 it looks yeah. pretty cool. And plus there's... The whole reanimation of the Frank character, yes, that whole for stuff sure. is awesome. Right, I do like that. The working title of the film was Sadomasochists from Beyond the Grave, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which, to be fair, would be an awesome title for a movie. I don't think it's going to really catch on, though. Yeah, well, <laughs> Beyond it is, the niche it's audience. weird. I don't know. It, it's sort of weird, like Hellraiser. I guess when you look at the cover, you just think of like Pinhead it is like Hellraiser. You know what I mean? Yeah, that the character Pinhead, yeah. he's Hellraiser. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people make that assumption if they haven't seen the movies. Yeah. As I said, this was Barker's first time as a director and he was pretty much clueless when it came to like the lenses and having people stand in their marks and Oh yeah, right. You know, just all the basic stuff that you would learn at film school. I mean, he had no idea really. They filmed it to be a British movie because Clive Barker is British. But then and it's hard to really tell that that's clear from watching well, it. Well, here's why: because okay. mm-hmm. the studio then changed their mind and they wanted it to be American. So then they redubbed some of the voices to oh sound boy. American <laughs> after the fact, 
and they tried to make the setting more. It is weird how like looking. the chick seems randomly British, and it doesn't seem like most other people are. Yeah, there's a few British voices that mixed in, but it ends up being this strange amalgam of <laughs> right. Britain and yeah. America. And the censorship was off the charts. This movie was definitely rated X, and then they had to cut out uh, tons of things, the and back. change different things. Somehow, though, with all of those things working against it, they managed to create this unique, thought-provoking, and visually stimulating film that has gone on to become a classic. There's nine sequels, and Pinhead is kind of in that modern horror pantheon that we talked a little bit about last episode with Although your maybe Kruger, Jason, Leatherface, undeservingly Michael Myers. though, maybe if you just base it off of the first one, yeah, right. He's well, much I guess more it, the focal but point I guess, uh, later. I guess you could make the same argument then with uh, Friday the Thirteenth, where it's with Jason. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess it, like I don't know any of the later iterations of this series. I don't know what you're even supposed to think where this would even be going with a pinhead character for the future. He becomes more the focal point. Okay. character the other Cenobites still are around but got it he's more and more and more prominent because when you watch this first movie Hellraiser he's not even in it for much for a long right. stretch he's at the very beginning and then he's he comes back in in the end but there's a huge portion of the movie where now have you se- seen some of these other movies in the series yeah I you saw have two some, and right? three um does he go on to like uh just I don't know, haunt people, torture them, like what? Well, it's always tied in with the the, the puzzle the, box. Okay, right. Anybody that opens it, they, okay, the so they continue that. Crew. Yeah, it just is more centered on that, right? Whereas in this movie, the actual villains of the movie turn out to be these human beings that aren't yeah, even one in particular connected. But okay, so let's jump into the movie itself, oh, and okay. as we've alluded to, despite the presence of Pinhead. The rest of his fellow Cenobites, and even that weird monster that kind of runs at Kirsty later in the movie. Oh, and yeah, it yeah. pops up at the very end. Right. They call that thing the engineer for some reason. But okay. Despite all of that, the real monster of Hellraiser turns out to be a woman. Yeah, not shockingly. <laughs> so that's. Isn't it always? If anyone was confused as to why we would want to do Hellraiser. Just watch well, it. Uh, yeah. I think it kind of makes sense. Right. <laughs> right in our wheelhouse. You pointed out that it's kind of a precursor to Under the Skin, and there is well, some similarities. Well, that's what it feels like at parts, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some similarities. Okay, so. <laughs> Go back to our second episode or whatever <laughs> that yeah. was. We covered Under the Skin a million years ago. I think it was like a 28-minute long episode. <laughs> I was just struggling to come up with things to say. Things were a lot different. Although I then. did, I still love, I mean, I, I would go back anytime and just like talk about like the idea of Scarlett Johansson just like driving around talking to random dudes and like they don't know it. Julia. Don't look at me. Who are you? I said don't Look. Help me. Tell me who you are. Frank. No. No. Believe me. It's me. It's really me. 
on the floor. It brought me back. Back? Just help me, will you? Please, God, help me! The film Hellraiser opens in Morocco. A yeah, man... No idea. What's that? That he's in. Do you know that he's in Morocco? Do they show that on the screen? Not really, no. Okay. A man named... And I am going to jump over and kind of fill in the gaps of this beginning, so we can relax. But first we'll do the movie, and then I'll come back, and I'll kind of fill it back in a little bit I'm with not what we learned from... Relaxed. <laughs> with what we learned from The Hellbound Heart, which was the source material. Okay, so... The film opens in Morocco. A man named Frank Cotton buys some sort of a puzzle box from another man. He seems to be some kind of a dealer in rare items, possibly <laughs> illicit. Items, yeah, in a pre-internet very uh, gremlins. True, Just a guy it that is. has weird yeah, shit. Yeah, right. In a, f- it always seems to be like some exotic locale, either in Asia or Africa like or South America or whatever. Walk like through an alley and then like down some steps, usually. Yeah. In a pre-internet era, how does one get involved in this sort of thing? How do you track down one of these? I don't these? know. It was a lot harder. Yeah. It took a lot more time. And what what inspires one to even pursue this? Like, how does this get on your radar? How it specifically does, I don't know. Why they're pursuing? Why he's pursuing it? We'll talk about that in a minute. But okay. Just a lot of there's like sweaty hands here and those just horribly dirty fingernails. Yeah, Oof. the sounds I mean, of insects. Maybe the buzzing. scariest part in the movie. It's a real sensory overload. But this was one of those scenes that you can definitely tell there was some overdubbing. Okay, right. Because yeah. the the guy, the dealer guy, is talking and his mouth's not moving. I mean, it's it's a <laughs> real scene. A good indication of like that we're headed to greatness here. When you do see things like that, you're like, it is shocking that this became Should what it became. Should we just take the Blu-ray out? Yeah, that's what you're thinking. <laughs> Cut to a bare attic, hardwood floor, Frank kneeling in the center of a square of lit candles. No shirt, on the floor. right? Shirtless. I mean, what is this for? Theatrical effect? I mean, why is Frank... Like, I really got to do it up for this. It's part of the ceremony. The the sitting in the candle circle, or I guess the circle of candles. Yeah, who if who you ever, is that for? If you ever There's find, no one else in the house. If you ever find yourself sitting in a square of lit candles shirtless, it's maybe time to re-examine your life. Right. So Frank takes this puzzle box that he bought, and he quickly solves the puzzle, which honestly doesn't seem too hard and is never really a thing in the movie. It's just oh, yeah. they just move a piece and then <laughs> shit starts happening. I don't know. <laughs> right. And he is rewarded with hooked chains emerging out of nowhere and just tearing them to pieces. It's, it's kind of hard to tell that what exactly is happening here. Yeah. These He's are just, the parts that had to get cut. <laughs> right. Like, it just kind of smashes forward to him kind of being in pieces. Like, you're seeing yeah. hooks. Well, you see a couple hooks come out and dig into some skin, right. and then, yeah. Yeah. The actual ripping is off screen. Yes, yes. And now the attic turns into this hellish nightmare with swinging chains and pieces of Frank everywhere. I feel like Frank made a mistake here. Yes. And we get our first appearance of the Cenobites, uh, most notably Pinhead, who picks up the box and returns it to its original state and thus returns the room back to normal. It's like, I'm putting this back to normal. No one's ever going to be able to figure this out again. <laughs> it's unclear. Although I guess they want people to figure it out, right? That kind of like facilitates I don't know. their whole existence. Yeah, they get all weird about this thing, yet they definitely want people to mess with it, I right. guess, so they can torture them or whatever. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't really know how to describe these Cenobites. I mean, one's called Butterball. There's <laughs> one that's just called Female Cenobite. Yeah. They all have, like, parts of their bodies somehow... Pierced or something? Ripped, like, right. ripped open, but then held so they don't, like... I don't know. There's a lot of things sticking in things. And then, of course, Pinhead has all the nails. Yeah, I don't like it. It's a physical representation of the sadomasochistic lifestyle, I think, because they're causing themselves the self-pain or something. Uh, yeah. So let's take a second to talk about the basis of Hellraiser, Clive Barker's original novella, The Hellbound Heart. The story was first published in November of 1986 by Dark Harvest. Oh, wow. So this was like a pretty quick turnaround then. Yeah, and it was the third volume of their Night Visions anthology series. <laughs> and the only reason I'm bringing this up... Yeah, I was going to say, this is for the hardcores, huh? It should be pointed out that the Night Visions 3 was edited by none other than George R.R. R. Martin. Whoa. His name's on the cover. All right. Holy cow. <laughs> In the Hellbound Heart, Frank Cotton is a hedonist who has devoted his entire life to a selfish, single-minded pursuit of the ultimate sexual experience. Should we describe Frank a little bit? I feel like he kind of has a Prince, like, Freddie Mercury vibe a little bit. <laughs> like a killer mustache. Very sweaty. Seems like he could just, like, wear leather, like, all the time. <laughs> Yeah, and this is stuff, as far as Frank's whole lifestyle and his being like some sort of a sexual monster, that is alluded to throughout Hellraiser, but when you see these bizarre opening scenes, you don't know that. Right, right. So this kind of just fills in what he's doing. And believing he is indulged in every pleasure the world can offer, Frank is left unfulfilled and wanting for something more extreme. He hears rumors of this puzzle box. Rumors. It's said this to is like be like people at a bar talking about it. <laughs> yeah, but not the kind of bars that normal people are in. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's said to be a portal to an extra-dimensional realm of unfathomable carnal pleasure. Eventually, he acquires it and prepares a shrine of offerings for the realm's inhabitants, the Cenobites, who are members of a religious order dedicated to extreme sensual experiences. However, Frank is horrified when the Cenobites turn out to not be beautiful women but rather scarified creatures whose bodies have been modified to the point that they are apparently sexless. Nevertheless, Frank is undeterred and ignores their warnings that what they are offering may not be what he expects. Yeah. He's that, yeah. I mean, he's so much of a degenerate. Right. He experiences total sensory overload and realizes that the Cenobites' devotion to sadomasochism is so extreme that they no longer differentiate between pain and pleasure. Okay, right. Well, that's... that. When we're first watching this and you were explaining it to me a little bit, it's like, well, the idea behind this box is it's either like extreme pain or extreme pleasure. But you're like, although it doesn't really seem like anyone ever gets pleasure. No. Yeah, I think the real story is that the Cenobites have transcended what we feel as pleasure on Earth and they've turned it into something oh, horrifying. Yeah, right. <laughs> Frank is sucked into the Cenobite realm where he realizes that he will be subjected to an eternity of what to humans is torture. Yeah, now, I mean, it is like... The physical manifestation is him being ripped to pieces by these hooks. was a huge mistake. <laughs> I mean, that just sounds like a terrible fate. Okay, so back to the movie itself. That was all kind of backstory from Hellbound Heart. Sometime after Frank's hook and chain mishap in the attic, his brother Larry arrives at the house. In the Larry, movie, kind of a less cool. Oh yeah, more uh, straight part laced. of the family. Yeah, <laughs> it's never clear in the movie though what this house is. They kind of at one point refer to it as the old lady. So I was thinking, I thought is it was their, their mom's, mom's house. Yeah, that's. I don't I think I that's it. how it is in the book. I okay. think it's like a grandparent's house or something. But 
they kind of leave it a little more vague. Or, and if it's not too long into it before it just it becomes clear that Frank was just sort of squatting there. Yeah. And Larry's moving in with his second wife, Julia. But that's why it feels even weirder about where they are, because they just keep kind of referencing, well, it's not Brooklyn. Yeah. Unbeknownst to Larry, Julia had an affair with Frank a week before their wedding. Yeah. And, and we'll get it more into that in fucking a minute. steamy. <laughs> Yeah, that was another thing they had to cut. Oh, apparently, the- like it was a wilder scene. Oh, wow, like, way wilder. In the Hellbound he was, Heart, like, putting this foot like, in his mouth. I think this will be the last time that I bring up the Hellbound Heart, but this just provides okay. a little bit more backstory. Julia has spent the entirety of her marriage obsessing over and lusting after Frank, only staying married to Larry for financial support. So that's what they're coming into here. Okay, we don't immediately. Get that. But it's quick, though. Right. It's not long until we see, like, the first flashback. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to more of the whole Frank-Julia thing in a minute, but let's talk about this house here. The initial move-in is kind of strange. First, the house is disgusting. Oh, yeah, there's, like, maggots and stuff all over the place. Yeah, the kitchen is a complete disaster. (laughs) Right. Seriously, kind of reminiscent of some kitchens that that I've experienced. Been a part of, yeah. Kind of reminded me... Of a little bit of a kitchen in a movie we saw recently, Mandy, the kitchen, oh, that, the well, house yeah. of those like demon guys right. or yes. whatever. It just kind of has that look of like one of those places where you end up like going to someone's apartment in college and it's just like, Jesus. And their roommate died like yeah. six weeks ago. And right. No they one knows. Only, they only find out when you're there because you're like, <laughs> hey, is that guy dead? And yeah. they're like, holy shit. You know, that story that everybody has. Clearly. <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> Even though Larry doesn't know the reason, it's clear that he at least knows that the marriage is strained, and that's kind of referenced a little bit. They're moving into this house as kind of a start over kind of a thing. Oh, yeah. We don't know what they've gone through together, but we know that they're still married. They're hitting the reset button. We're going to find out well, in a yeah, minute I mean, what's going on with Julia. Larry, I mean, he he wants to give it the honest shot here. He's definitely, like, oblivious. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not even just to the fact of, like, the Frank thing, but he just seems, like, completely unassuming, like, would not know anything is wrong ever. No. So upstairs, they find Frank's crash room. Like, he's got sex Polaroids and porno and <laughs> weird sex statues and all this weird shit. Oh, yeah. And you can almost tell immediately by Julia's reaction. Oh, she's burning up. Yeah. She's a little too interested in these sex Polaroids. (laughs) Yeah. And when Larry leaves the room, she, like, takes one of them and rips the girl out of the picture just so she has a picture of Frank to look at. Man, this girl is down to clown. Larry's daughter, Kirsty, has found somewhere else to stay and will not be living with her dad and Julia. And Ah, I wonder why. It's kind of unclear how old Kirsty is supposed to be. She looks to me to be in her early 20s. I saw online it's a teenage daughter. There's a multitude of reasons not to live here. I mean, A, look at it. B, like, what's going on with Julia? Yeah, I would definitely say that there's a hint at a tense relationship it seems between that. Julia and Kirsty. Yeah. But it's never explicit, though, in right. the movie. Julia, prim and proper English lady... She's just obsessing over Frank's sex pictures <laughs> yeah. while Larry's on the phone with Kirsty in the by other night. room. This lady is a freak. Absolutely. And she's all about that dick. Yes. <laughs> I think that's clear. And it becomes more and more clear as we go throughout this movie. <laughs> she yeah. is all about that fucking dick. She can't stop thinking about it. So Larry and some movers are trying to get a bed upstairs when he cuts his hand on a nail. And this sets off 
whole thing, yeah, this whole <laughs> like build up of the bed being moved, trying to get the bed up the stairs. There's like a struggle. This is all cut with the flashback of Frank fucking Julia. Yeah. It's the week before the wedding. He shows up for the first time. I guess, yeah, we should point out, yeah, like he just kind of shows up at the door. And, In the and, rain, I mean, yeah. it does not take long from there. No. I, before she is just like under that trance yeah this is in this flashback it's like the first time julia has ever laid eyes on him and he's forceful and direct and frankly a bit rapey if we're oh, being honest. certainly rapey but i mean I, she's into it so i mean yeah not rapey doesn't take long for there to be some switchblade play <laughs> involved <laughs> i it's kind of a like psychotic move. I, I don't know what it is. In the 80s, it's just like the switchblade is always involved. It's kind of a wild thing. I mean, you're with a lady. It's already kind of a sketchy situation. You're basically <laughs> going to fuck your brother's fiance. Right. It's a pretty big gamble to take that switchblade out and think she's going to just roll with it. Not that a could lot of definitely hesitation. throw the brakes on but that's it. That's the thing about a guy <laughs> like Frank is he's, he's just going to go for it. And I mean, it seems like he's had a, a lot of success with just going for it. What shall we drink to? Wedded bliss? I'm very happy. Not sure you are. You're gonna let me kiss the bride? There's a quote on Wikipedia about this scene and Clive Barker was saying that there was just like all these issues with the number of times that you see Frank thrusting and <laughs> oh boy. there was yeah, like, I'm sure. there was a lot more going on in the scene and they had to like cut it all out. But I do appreciate the fact that Frank and Julia are literally fucking on her wedding dress. It it's is just pretty laid nuts. out on the bed and then he just throws her on the wedding dress and they're fucking. Oh yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, poor Larry just out kind of like, you know, shopping thinking about his future being married and they kind of cut it together where the climax of the sex in the flashback happens as he cuts his hand on the nail and there's all this blood and the blood is coming out like come it's pretty fucked up yeah that's a good point <laughs> as she's remembering all of this julia is drawn upstairs to the attic the site of frank's demise although she doesn't know it and she's weeping literally weeping at the memory of getting fucked by frank and she doesn't know frank is yeah, dead i mean it should be pointed out julia has got it bad for frank <laughs> in case we weren't, yeah. weren't clear yet <laughs> yeah. but I, imagine your wife is weeping at the memory of fucking your brother <laughs> yeah it's it's pretty rough i mean for once i can't relate since i don't have a brother but i'm sure if i did it's a real he would be a cool dude with a mustache grim life that larry's living kind of uh, yeah but again yeah that's the thing it, it's nice to know that at least it doesn't even cross his mind that, that this is a possibility with his sliced hand larry looks for julia up in the attic and this kind of sets everything in motion because his blood drips onto the attic floor and we see it sucked into the floorboards and like the nails and the floorboards and stuff it's kind of a cool effect to see the yeah. blood being like sucked into the floor now the explanation behind all this and where it leads to uh i mean i get it that you can kind of like connect some dots here but i'm still a little bit like i don't know well the blood resurrects frank yeah right <laughs> that's the explanation <laughs> okay there you go 
Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if they try to explain this in some kind of... (laughs) We'd be like, why are they even... Right. I mean, it's something that's so insane that you might as well just go with it. I mean, we have a puzzle box that summons these demons. Yeah, I don't get it. I guess, like, there's remnants of Frank just, like, left behind. Something. Something's there, and it... But also, Frank explains that he's kind of doing something to escape the Yeah, that plays into the part that I read from The Hellbound Heart, where he's, like being tortured in another realm yeah can you read that again no (laughs) yeah the practical effects just grotesque and wonderful and certainly (laughs) well described why it's why this movie is memorable and a classic really okay because at first frank becomes this skinless corpse alive but nowhere near completion yet. like an insane trembling voice yeah, and he kind of looks like a child almost. He's so small. Oh, right. Yeah. When he's crawling along the floor. That's actually like one of the creepiest visuals. And he looks like very skeletal. Yeah, it's just this kind of horrible looking monster crawling around on the floor. <laughs> Julia is just like, oh my God, it's Frank. If, okay, Julia is the one who discovers this horrifying version of Frank upstairs. But, I mean, she doesn't know that yeah. it's him right away. He kind of crawls across the floor and he grabs her and he's like, don't look at me, even though he just crawled at her and grabbed her. Yeah, kind of mixed messages here. But it really doesn't take a lot for Frank to convince her to help him, which, I mean, obviously plays into everything we've been talking about thus far. Yeah. But, I mean, this horrible looking... She wants her man back. Skeleton monster thing crawls on the floor, grabs you, you're screaming in fear. Two seconds later, she's like, all right, tell me what I need to do. We'll we'll do it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she does come to terms with it pretty quickly. Yeah, her level of obsession with Frank is actually almost admirable. Yeah. It's disturbing, but admirable. You can't leave me like this. You can't. Do you want me to do? The blood brought me this far. I need more. You have to heal me. Yeah, and this next portion of the movie kind of does become under the skin for sad middle-aged British men. Yeah, I mean, this has to be like the greater chunk of the movie, it feels like. Julia basically needs to How do they put this all together? That Frank says, I need to be fed by more blood. You need to okay. bring me more blood. Right. And I think Frank wants to kill Larry first, and she doesn't want to. Yeah, and that there's kind like a of couple a of times. Thing. Yeah, yeah. So she just lures men. She goes to bars in the middle of the day. These bars are packed. (laughs) She just lures men back to the house, takes them up to the attic. It is, again, one of those things where it's just like, how? I don't know. I just can't envision a scenario like this ever happening. I mean, to me, certainly, but just kind of in general that like middle-aged woman kind of luring a man from a bar, a nice bar back to her house during the middle of the day. I just feel like if I was the guy, I would be like, something is awry here. Well, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Thank you. Finally, someone said it. So once she gets him to the attic, she kills them with a hammer, and it's extremely violent and bloody. And then Frank basically just kind of, I don't know, he doesn't even really use like his mouth, but he kind of sucks up their blood yeah through like his hands and stuff it's real gross her insatiable thirst for frank for frank's cock yeah i mean it just will drive her to do anything i mean maybe she could have just told larry to incorporate a switchblade into their love making i don't larry just didn't have <laughs> larry the is not a switchblade kind of guy no no he would have been just 
a fraud. She would have seen right through it. Frank becomes more and more human-like with each kill, but for most of the movie, he's just this dripping ghoul of a thing. <laughs> I mean, it's real it gross. Almost, it's almost comical, like the way he talks and stuff, too. Yeah. It, it has of, like this oh, like booming echo to it. It's strange because it's not the same actor as the guy that right. plays Frank yeah. in the beginning of the movie. So halfway through the movie, and almost no Pinhead or the other Cenobites... And as I think we kind of touched on this, it's it is very similar to Friday the Thirteenth in that it's this thing that went on to become a franchise based around a character or characters, and the original is very different from the idea of what that franchise kind oh, yeah. of became over time. Well, yeah, and I mean I, we've already hit on it so many times, but it's just like Pinhead is really not like a character in this movie. I, I mean, yeah, and Doug Bradley who plays Pinhead. He played Pinhead in almost all the movies, I think, except for the last two that are, you know, recent straight to VOD movies. Okay. But he was offered by Clive Barker to play either Pinhead or one of the movers who's helping Larry move <laughs> the bed. That's like the level that this role was. Now, I think Pinhead obviously has more screen time and lines than the mover. Right. But the trade-off was, oh, you're going to have to wear all this shit on your face and you wouldn't even be recognizable. And thankfully for Bradley, he made the right yeah, call. That's a career-changing moment. Yeah, he, he gets a whole career being this iconic character rather than just some random extra almost. Yeah, right. But Frank and Julia are truly the main villains of Hellraiser. Oh, absolutely. So it's a little bit different than what your preconceived notions of Hellraiser would be. You yeah. would think, okay... Obviously, we're going to be haunted by these demon-looking things with nails in their faces or whatever. And right. it's like, no, no, no. And I mean, maybe I'm forgetting. Do we know how Frank and Julia's relationship ended originally? No, not Did really. Did he just kind of take off? She got married. He was a, you know, he's a free spirit. So Yeah, he's in and out of places all the time, right. I think. So let's talk about Kirstie a little bit here. She meets this new dude who is at like a party at Larry and Julia's oh, that's house. That's right. Yeah. That part's really weird Sometimes too. Sometimes you forget that, yeah, that there's like these other little side stories. The only reason I even felt like bringing it up is A, he's at the end of the movie, so it's kind of it, we need to introduce him now. I don't even know what his name is. They never really even say it. But no, in fact, when I made you go over the characters' names before we recorded, he not mentioned. And the only reason it's really worth bringing up besides him being at the end is the scene where they kind of first meet at this party at her dad's house. Kirsty's having like a drink poured for her and she's already kind of drunk. And she says like, oh man, I'm not going to be able to stand up. And then that guy just goes, well then lay down there. <laughs> and the whole table <laughs> is, is just true. like, ooh, <laughs> even her even her dad. That's right. I forgot about this scene, but now that you're talking about it. Yeah, it's the that first is like, time she's even met this guy. Who is weird. this guy? <laughs> They never explain who the people sport, are. Yeah. <laughs> it's just these people at a party. It's supposed to be like a nice dinner party, it seems like. And what's my darling daughter drinking? I don't remember. <laughs> oh, oh Julie, that's my uh, No, no more for me, thanks. Okay. Okay, stop. I'm not going to be able to stand up. So lie down. So then Kirsty gets a job at a pet store, which is very strange. And she also has several tense and upsetting interactions with the same bearded vagrant, including right. a time where he enters the pet store and just starts eating a bunch of grasshoppers. 
Yeah, I mean, this guy, it seems like he must be like following her a little bit. Yeah, and right? it obviously comes back into play at the end. And she also has like kind of a cool-looking nightmare, which prompts her to call her father. But the nightmare is very strange. It's all these feathers floating around, and then there's this sheet covering a body, and the sheet is turning bloody, and then the body like sits up. It's this whole thing. Yeah, it's very I do symbolic. remember the dream. It is just funny, though, that she's living on her own, but she has a nightmare, so she calls her dad. <laughs> yeah, but well. is this supposed to be some sort of a premonition? I mean, I guess. Yeah. You see that a lot with these horror movies, including Pet Cemetery, which we did this month. It is weird, though. It's just like, all right, sweetheart, I think the phone call to dad can wait till tomorrow. So knowing our horror movie logic, we okay. understand that it will ultimately come down to Kirsty to put a stop to this. There's always a final girl. That's right. We talked about it with Nightmare on Elm Street. It's the and same I would say Kirsty is actually one of the greats. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're mocking me for putting over uh, Nancy and Nightmare on Elm Street, which is yeah. a popular and well-tread topic. All right. She's a great there final girl, but Kirsty, no. Kirsty, thick though. She's thick. Which we like that. <laughs> we do like that. She's got an interesting look. I'll say that. So there you have it. Well, she doesn't have like your typical. Yeah, she's got a unique movie look star look. I mean, she's... actually, no one in this movie really does. <laughs> That's it... a valid point. <laughs> I mean, I don't think a lot of these people landed these parts based on their looks. Yeah, you know, the most shocking, and certainly thing... not their acting abilities either. The most shocking thing ever was us looking up how old Julia was at the time <laughs> of the filming, and she's young. And how old we thought that she was? She was younger than I am now when this movie and came I, out. Well, and I she like, looks like she's 48. Well, I think, I can't remember how exactly it played out, but I, I think I was thinking that she was some age, and you were like, I don't know. I mean, I would say she's probably 40, but you were saying that that like as if that was on the younger end. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Because we were acting like she People was so old. just looked way older back then. Yeah. You know? I know. I get. I just, and there was something about, yeah, like the feathered hair in the, the 80s. The hair and the makeup right. was just way different. And people, for Everyone some looked reason, very pale. I don't know why, cocaine but use. some people just wanted to look older. That was just the idea, I think. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. I, I don't know. Larry almost discovers Frank when he hears a noise in the attic. But Julia... Stops him and tries to seduce him in order to distract him. So he <laughs> anything won't go to up say, there. Frank. <laughs> She's like, oh god, I'll, I guess I'll fuck my husband. Yeah. <laughs> so Frank comes down into the bedroom while his brother and Julia are boning down, and he intimates that he's going to kill Larry. But Julia begs and pleads for Frank to stop. Like, how? Larry's just like crushing on top. I guess. Yeah. And Julia's looking over his shoulder. And he's just in a state of ecstasy. Frank. He thinks that she's talking. To him. And That's so right. she's like, he's like, oh, I guess I better put the brakes on. <laughs> My wife's not into this. Right. And I guess she still has somewhat of a soul at this point, even though she's done horrible well, things I mean, and it's killed hard people. To, it's hard to really find Larry hateable if you're her. Yeah, but if she has no problem killing people to bring back the brother of her husband just so she can fuck him Well, again. maybe there's just like a certain line that she feels like. Once I cross that line, I've really become a horrible person. Well, poor stupid Larry. He thinks that she's talking to him. He doesn't even get to fuck his own wife at this point. I mean, it's a real, it's a dark, real scene. sad yeah. scene. Kirsty eventually sees Julia bringing randos into the house, and naturally she assumes that her stepmother is having an affair. But what she discovers is so much worse because she goes up into the attic and she finds Frank 
feeding on this guy. Yeah. And it is like a horror show that, how do you even wrap your mind around what you're seeing? Yeah, it certainly seems like it would be a traumatic experience. I think that the more realistic thing in horror movies would be to have people witness these and just throw up and no and just slip into insanity and never come back oh well yeah just go off and off the edge everyone kind of compartmentalizes are able to sort of take it in yeah like oh okay so this is the world i'm living in now my uncle frank died and now he's having my stepmother bring him men to feed off of to regain his body Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. Kirstie, yeah, really kind of just a great private investigator. At this point, he kind of looks like, what's that guy from, like, the first Captain America movie? That, like, Red Skull uh, guy? Yeah, Red Skull. Yeah. yeah. Or, like, um, Hellrider or something. Ghost Rider? Ghost Rider, yeah. <laughs> Hellrider? Yeah. Hellrider is the sequel to Hellraiser. That's right. Okay, so Red Skull Frank, immediately interested in his niece in a creepy way, and he's just like, You've grown. <laughs> and he says, come to daddy he, he and stuff. He actually says, thick. <laughs> no. Kirstie, it's Frank. It's Uncle Frank. No. You remember. No. Come to daddy. Get the fuck off of me. You've grown. You're beautiful. Don't. Don't touch me. Don't touch me, or so help me! What do you do? What can you do? There's nothing to be afraid of. Bet you make your daddy so proud, don't you, beautiful? This isn't happening. I used to tell myself that. I used to try and pretend I was dreaming all the pain. But don't you kid yourself. Some things have to be endured. And that's what makes the pleasure so sweet. Kirsty fights back, grabs the box, the puzzle box, which is sitting on the floor, and throws it out the window to distract Frank. Because the thing we should mention is that Frank has told Julia about this puzzle box and the Cenobites, and he definitely seems afraid of them, and he's worried that they're going to figure out he's missing, and they're going to come find him. I mean, how big is Cenobite land or whatever? I mean, Well, it seems to be pretty big because they so. don't know. They can't find him anywhere. Yeah, they don't know. Well, they no, they don't even know he's missing until okay. Kirstie tells them That's later. right, yes. Yeah, I guess they got a lot of people yeah. going on down there. A lot of just torture for eternity going on. If we're talking about eternity, they've had a lot of time That's right. to build up the numbers. <laughs> they have nothing but time. So when Kirsty flees, she grabs the box outside and keeps running, but she eventually collapses in the street, which is kind of a weird thing, because then she wakes up in a hospital, which seems more like a mental ward, and she's locked into a room. It does seem it's like a mental ward. I, I know, happening. right. But they treat it like it's a hospital, but it has the look of a psychiatric ward. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could maybe infer... Because she gets a visitor, right? I mean, doesn't that guy come to see her? Which guy? Oh, the guy it, that she's dating. Yeah, is she gone by then? Oh, maybe that's remember. true. I don't know. This is, it is. You get to a certain point in this movie, and it's just like hard to stay completely checked in. <laughs> Which I feel like you say about every. Movie. That's true. Kirstie awakens in this hospital. She solves the puzzle box, and she summons the Cenobites, and the whole hell dimension thing happens before they even like are in the room. Though she goes into this opening that forms in the hospital wall when she solves the puzzle and it like leads into hell i guess or whatever whatever it's supposed to be <laughs> yeah some this other world spin yeah wildly out of control and that's when we see this engineer thing which is this huge monster it kind of reminds me of a piranha 
I guess it was based off of like a lot of different animals. It's the Mothman. It's a giant thing. And it looks pretty horrible, but in the HD transfer on the Blu-ray, you can like clearly see the dolly and the wheels under it at one point. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> I guess it was like a real bitch to move it anyway, but it seems like it would be. I mean, at this point of the movie, I, I don't. I'm like, I, what is this thing? It's just another demon, another yeah. monster. I know. I I get that, but well, it's, it's just, hard to really kind of figure out how it fits in with everything. Well, I think it's just supposed to be like that world, the world of the Cenobites is like hell. I mean, yeah, it's, it's kind of like it's um, just got bad shit in it. It's kind of like the mist or whatever. When yeah, they open just, that portal, and there's, there's all no just weird story shit. Right. for this thing. It's just there. It, yeah. it exists in that world. Gotcha. Yeah, you can check Wikipedia. You find out it's it's something called the engineer. I think it does appear maybe in some of the later sequels or something. They what were people doing when they, when they didn't have Wikipedia to fill in the gaps? You know, well, it's just a monster. Okay. <laughs> That was good enough. The engineer is a demon which prowls the quarters of hell. It resembles an amalgamation of various animals. Like I said, I, I'm reminded of a piranha at least with like the mouth face part of it. Okay. There's a chase. She gets back to the hospital room. Back in the hospital room, the Cenobites arrive. Pinhead, the leader, explains that although they have been perceived as both angels and demons, they are simply explorers from another dimension seeking carnal experiences. And they can no what longer differentiate between pain and pleasure. So it is kind of like a Nightmare on Elm Street a little bit where the chick in both situations kind of gets like these very like practical ideas of how they're going to defeat the villains. It's not like she knew what this puzzle box was and she knew what was going to happen. Well, yeah, but I, I, you get the feeling that there's something premeditated about her idea of cutting a deal that she's going to turn Uncle Frank over to these guys. Yeah, I or, do I think mean, she's there's just quick a certain, on her feet, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a certain leap here that she's making, I guess, that you kind of have to just accept as an audience that once she sees her horrifying-looking uncle, that she somehow connects it to these monsters that she summons with this puzzle box. Yeah. Because she, they want to take her. Really just great job by her. Because they show up when someone does this, and they're like, all right, well... This bitch did it, so let's take We've her. We've got something in store for her. And she's like, whoa, 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 let's make a deal. Although Frank didn't have a chance to really cut a deal. No. When he, you know, solved the puzzle box. Well, they saw that circle of candles. Oh, they're, and they're like, like, he's this ready guy's to go. ready to jack off. Yeah. We know what this is about. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they want to take her, and she's like, no, no, you guys took a guy named Frank, but wait, he escaped. And they're like, what? No. She's like, yeah. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, the Cenobites are looking around at each other and they're like, I don't know what it is, but this chick is making a lot of sense. <laughs> we like, got to get Frank. Whose job was it there? to watch Frank? Yeah. So she's like, no, if I'll take you to Frank and you can have him instead. And they're like, all right, whatever. <laughs> yeah. They're like, we, we definitely want to take Frank after we take him. And then we'll TBD. think about, yeah, leaving <laughs> you alone. So Kirstie returns home, but. By that point, it's too late for Daddy. Poor Larry. I mean, yeah. At this, he doesn't even get killed on screen. It does. I will say the progression of Frank getting resurrected. It seems very jutted. I mean, and like the scale in between each stage seems to shift because he makes some pretty big leaps. It seems like Julia's killed enough people that he should be back in regular form. Yeah, by now. I would. I do agree. I think the last kill. He didn't seem to improve at all. Okay. But I think he starts to panic about Kirsty taking the box. And so he's 
he tells Julia, "I do love like we don't have any more time." Yeah, I love when he, him and Julia will have these conversations as he progresses and stuff. And it's like there's times where Julia is like, "Let's just go, you and me. Come on, we're together. This is fine. You look fine." And he's like, <laughs> "I can't leave this attic. Look at me." <laughs> Frank kills Larry and steals his skin, and it takes way too long for Kirsty to notice that something is wrong. <laughs> Something's not right here. He's got blood leaking out his face. Well, like, yeah, the, the blood is congealing around, like, the ears and the scalp, and it just doesn't look 100% right. Now, I get that she's in it's a state such of an insane distress. thing, and she's not fully aware of everything that's happening, so why would she make this leap? If I saw you with like blood on your head, I wouldn't necessarily think that you someone else was wearing your skin. You would I think, would like, say you should What's go to the hospital. Yeah. Or you would like wait till I left the room and like ask somebody else, like, what the fuck's going on with him? <laughs> Where is he? Daddy. Daddy. Daddy, you're okay. You're really sure, okay. You're really okay. It's okay. I was so afraid that something happened to you. It's okay, baby. Julia told me everything. Oh, no. See, your brother Frank is upstairs. He's, he's upstairs and he's trying to kill you. Uh, he's gonna uh, kill no, you. Wait, wait, wait. Whatever Frank did was unspeakable. It's unspeakable. But believe me, it's finished with now. Why is it finished? He's gone. What does God mean? He's dead, Kirsty. He was insane, baby. Like a mad dog. I had to put him out of his misery. Jesus, what a scene. And when I'm feeling better, I'll go to the police and try to make them understand. God knows. I don't really understand myself. Julia takes Kirsty to a flayed corpse in the attic that they are claiming is Frank because she talks to Frank wearing her dad's skin and he's pretending to be Larry and not so convincingly claiming though. that he killed Frank. But it is really Larry, this corpse in the attic, and Julia locks Kirsty in there with it. Oh, no. And that's when the Cenobites show up and they're like, we want the man who did this gesturing toward the corpse. And Kirsty, an idiot, <laughs> still not catching on, is like, no, because she thinks the corpse is Frank and her father did it. Oh, boy. <laughs> so this is like turning into a mess. We want the man who did this. No. No, that wasn't the deal. He's my father, and you can't have him! No! Yeah, you would think the uh, Cenobites or whatever would just be like, you know what, we're taking you all. Yeah, Enough fuck with this. this. Right. Kirsty tries to run out of the house, but is stopped by Julia. What's the matter? There's no time. No way, no way. I told you all that's over with now. No, it's not! We've got to get out of here! No, stay with us. We can all be happy here. Come to daddy. Oh my God. Come 
to Daddy. finally realizes it's not her dad when Frank with Larry's skin tries to fuck her. <laughs> He's basically like, "Hey baby." Yeah, that's and he right. he says the come to daddy thing and he, she's like, "Oh my god. It's you. <laughs> he, my uncle. He really 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 wants to get inside his niece in the, <laughs> in this movie." Well, I don't know. You hear stories. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> but Kirsty thankfully rejects him. Thankfully, like it's bad enough if she's gonna fuck her uncle, but her uncle wearing her dad's skin—it's <laughs> like really double incest. S- yeah, speak to some issues. <laughs> she's like, finally, I can fuck my dad. No, no, Kirstie's a good girl. <laughs> she scratches off some cheek skin from this Frank. This is insane. How much cheek skin she gets? Oh, that skin is just like a suit. It's just barely on. Yeah, it's just like yeah. pasted on. So basically, like, half his face is gone. No, not half his face. Get <laughs> out of right. here. right. One-eighth of his face. Julia grabs her and is holding her to Frank to kill to complete his transformation, but Kirstie is able to move at the last second, and Frank accidentally kills Julia instead. And Which, I have to- <laughs> We all know that's where it was headed anyway. And I have to say, he really didn't seem that broken up about it. No, I mean, he was never into Julia. In fact, he just drinks julia's blood instead without any remorse about it that's true he's just like well one body's as good as another well let's be honest the only reason he ever wanted to fuck her anyway was because she was engaged to his brother yeah and now that his brother's dead it's right. like who cares he chases Kirsty up to the attic that's his big mistake though because the cenobites appear after frank confesses out loud to killing larry oh boy cue the chains and hooks frank you dope you thought you were out No, don't mourn him. He was dead long before we ever touched him. Bastard! Oh, hush now. Everything's all right. Frank's here. Bastard! Your dear old Uncle Frank. What the hell is that? For your eyes. You set me up, bitch. 
Very similar to the beginning, although this time it's pretty awesome because you see him with all the hooks in him. That's true. It's like holding his like right. face apart, and he's like, Jesus wept, <laughs> and he just gets like ripped to pieces. Yeah. But even in that last moment, when there's hooks all in his body and he's just hanging suspended, he like licks his lips in that like real gross oh, way like yeah. towards Kirsty. <laughs> yeah. He's well, like he a total a creep to right. the end. Yeah. <laughs> Respect. <laughs> yeah. Zach has a statue of Frank. <laughs> Frank is kind of a legend in a yeah. lot of ways. I mean, he's a guy who basically gave up his life to try to just nut better. Yeah. That's <laughs> certainly a mission. He was willing to sacrifice himself for a more fulfilling orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> Shockingly, the Cenobites decide they want Kirsty too. I mean, who would have saw? No, yeah. The, who would have like, thought that these guys weren't seem, really... They seem trustworthy. However, she's able to banish the Cenobites one at a time by reversing the motions needed to open the puzzle box. She's just like, I don't believe in you. You're not real. Yeah. <laughs> that old trick. No, that's not what happens. <laughs> they are very real in this yeah. movie. Have such sights to show you. No, don't do that. Go to hell. And this is probably the worst effects and the most dated effects when she's using this puzzle box to like zap them, like those fake electric shots. Yeah, this things. is not great. Yeah, kind of sad. Her boyfriend, that dude, shows up. The house starts collapsing. For some reason, which is unclear, I don't know. I'm not sure why her house starts collapsing. Her house or whatever, her dad's house. I mean, is the house that tied in with the Cenobites at this point that it I, just maybe, collapses? I mean, I think Frank must have tied something all together with the candles. Once you put like a circle <laughs> of candles in an attic, it, you're forever it's linked like Bob to the paranormal. Yeah. Or no, not Bob, the uh, Mike. Oh, yeah. The one-armed man. The engineer makes one last appearance. If you remember, that's that like horrible monster from hell. Just at the front door, which is kind of funny. <laughs> that like gruesome monster thing, which is not even like humanoid at all it's no, not no. it's just like a weird shape it's just like standing at the door like knocking on the door <laughs> ringing the doorbell but Kirsty manages to fight it off with one last twist of the puzzle box it seems like everything is I, yeah it, it, the puzzle box becoming the main weapon against these things well it's basically just zapping them back to their own dimension I okay guess. yeah i don't know you know the logic of these things isn't really made abundantly clear no, but no when you invent the idea of a puzzle box that summons demons from another That's dimension right. I think you kind of just have to go with it. Yeah, which we certainly did. After all of this, Kirsty finds some random homeless people fires. You know, like those just kind of open flames <laughs> that were prevalent in movies in the 80s, which I've never actually seen. But Like just guys standing around a fire in a barrel? Yeah, like New York in the 80s, that right. kind of look. Yeah. <laughs> which, I don't know, I've never actually seen that, but she finds like this whole area It does area seem like it would cause some issues. Yeah, like, I, I don't know. Yeah, there's not first responders coming around being like, you need to put that out. So she tosses the puzzle box into one of the fires and the vagrant who we mentioned briefly, who had been stalking Kirsty throughout the movie, 
walks into the fire and just like erupts into flames while doing it. And he, just he was re- like, oh, my gosh, she threw that. <laughs> it was a dollar. <laughs> and he retrieves the box before transforming into some kind of winged creature and he fl- flies away. I mean, this oh, that's part right. is so You know, terrible. I was picturing that thing, that being the engineer. No. The thing at the end. Okay. No, that's just like some weird skeleton thing. Right, yeah. The engineer just was just another that giant monster thing. Yeah, yeah. I got it now, but it's like it's a, this winged creature just shows up and just flies away, right? That's Yeah, I, evidently he it takes it back to wherever that dealer guy is because the movie ends how it began, the same merchant in Morocco offering the box up to someone new. Yeah. Basically assuring that the cycle will repeat. And as we know, since there's a lot of other movies, it does. Yeah, but the second one is a continuation of the Kirsty story where she's like in a mental hospital. Is it or something. the same actress? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's cool. I don't recall her being in the third one, but she may have come back for a different one other than the third one. The third one, I think, was something kind of unrelated to yeah. this. But so I just, I guess, I found out just like much later in life that this movie not quite as scary as the young version of myself envisioned no. it being. No, I think it's supposed to just be like gruesome and kind of weird. Yeah, weird. Right. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say what the actual intentions are. What the feel is. Yeah, it's definitely supposed to be like creepy and gross. I didn't have the same visceral reaction to the cover of Hellraiser that I did to the stuff that we talked about in Night Round Elm Street where I was terrified Uh, of Freddy Krueger before ever seeing the movie. Right. I definitely was too much of a pussy probably when I was a kid to see something like Hellraiser. But well, certainly the cover always jumped out to me. You know what I yeah. mean? Like when I was very far away from watching a rated R movie, you just see that cover sitting on a shelf and you're like, oh, man, I don't want to go down that road. We talked about this just kind of talking about the movie Mandy, but I definitely think there was a whole world created by the boxes of VHS movies, uh, especially agree. in the 80s and 90s. And oftentimes, whatever was on the cover just was not what you would think. Right. You know, or, it or, would yeah, create a whole other movie in your mind. You'd get this whole idea of what it was. If you would, like, yeah, there was definitely a big period of my life where if you would have to- described to me what most of the movie Hellraiser was like, I would have been like, what? Yeah, I know. I just same. assumed it all took place in hell or some horrible place where that demon was. I thought it was just, like, all about Pinhead, like, tormenting people and, like, killing yeah. people. Right. Yeah, more of a straight up tormenting. <laughs> He's just, like, going around <laughs> annoying people. <laughs> It is a lot different. I I think the idea of this movie, though, is kind of cool in that it allows there to be these monsters, whether it's the Cenobites or the other things or whatever from hell. But the whole moral of the story is that, like, the things that mankind does is, like, the real horror. And that those things kind of are only existing. I think the true horror is there's a lot of Franks out there, you know? A lot of Julia's. That's true. A lot of Julius. I've known some Julius. Julius still works. Like, I think she was the one I think that I said was in Ready Player One, maybe. Okay. I think so. Yeah. I think you said that. Yeah, she's still around uh, doing her thing. I don't really know about what happened to the girl. That is funny. Just like us struggling, like discussing how old we think she is. And it's just like, you know, you're saying, like, you know what? We're saying how old she looks. And she's probably like 40. (laughs) <laughs> and like that's the young and it's just like you look it up and she's like what 32 or something yeah it was oh no uh, yeah it was kind of depressing yep uh what can you say no so is that it for hellraiser 
Yeah, I yeah. think that'll I think do that's it. That's good. And I mean, I guess this is it for October, huh? Yeah, the that's greatest wild. October in the history of forever comes to a close. This was a good one, though. I I enjoyed it. Not necessarily Hellraiser, but the rest of the month certainly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think Hellraiser was cool. Yeah, I think uh, so. Yeah, it was a fun month. We crammed a lot into it, and I wouldn't be surprised if there was a another episode coming your way real quick. That's we true. have something else kind of fun uh, that. And who knows? Maybe Fits we'll with the time uh, period. Well, maybe randomly between now and next year, we'll jump back into the world of horror a little bit. You never know. Yeah, that could pop know. up at any time. Right? Yeah, I mean, who yeah. knows? Okay, there you go. Anyway, thank you for listening. Follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod. Subscribe on iTunes and just continue. Yeah, please spreading the word. Yeah, we're not going anywhere. Tell a friend. Tell a lover. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever. Yeah, tell your uh, brother's fiance. <laughs> yeah, as you take that switchblade out. So anyway, I guess that'll do it, and we'll see you next time. I saw a star beneath the stairs Glowing through the mountain wall Who will be the first to
only ever said I love you to two men my entire life. Stone Cold Steve Austin and a guy in a dark club who I mistook for Stone Cold Steve Austin.